Today we are going to talk about how to make creativity a priority in your CRO process and how to level up your CRO research and we'll be doing that together with AJ Davis. AJ is an industry expert in user experience strategy with a proven track record for delivering measurable value to clients. She's the founder of optimization agency Experiment Zone and before that she led optimization strategy for Fortune 500 companies during her tenure at Clearhead and she was also the lead UX researcher for a product that we all at least played around with uh, which is Google Optimize. My name is Guido Jansen and welcome to Zero Cafe, the podcast where I show you the behind the scenes of optimization teams and talk with their specialists about data and human-driven optimization and implementing a culture of experimentation and validation. In case you missed it, in the previous English episode I spoke with Amardeep Atwal about why empathy is the, probably the most important skill for any Zero professional. You can listen to that episode on the Zero Cafe website or in the podcast app you're listening with right now. This episode of Zero Cafe is made possible by our partners SiteSpect, Online Influence Institute, Content Square, Convert.com and Online Dialogue. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 33. So AJ, a warm welcome to the cafe and yeah, let's start off with how you got started with UX. Great, thanks for having me on. Uh, so what I do is I do conversion rate optimization crossed with user experience research. So I started my career as a user experience researcher and then I moved into conversion rate optimization. Uh, I was working at Google for a while and I got a chance to work on the Google Optimize product and to see how people do CRO and what A-B testing is all about and decided to go and do that. So I worked for a company called Clearhead in Austin, Texas for a while. And then I started my own, own, I started my own agency called Experiment Zone three years ago. What would stand out the most if you, if you think back on, on, on looking at how people use Optimizely uh, or sorry, Google Optimize? Uh, what stands out the most? What, what are the weird things that you remember people doing? Well, I was on the team from the very beginning. So I was, we were in a hotel room in California and not like an actual hotel room. We were in, actually we were, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were, we were in, we were at a hotel like as a conference center and we had a chance to yeah. group in teams of seven to 10 people for a Google sprint week. So it was following the standard textbook, Google sprint. So five days of starting from an idea to having a product. And so I was coming to that group at, with the lens of a user experience researcher and asking a lot of questions about who the target users were. And at the time, we were just starting from scratch and starting from zero. And it was a chance to really learn about all the varieties of ways people use testing. And so I think what uh, surprised me most was how mature some testing programs were in places that you might expect, like news agencies, and how immature it was in other places where you would expect it to be really mature and they might have one person spend a little bit of time thinking about it, but not really having a full system. And what I walked away with was that uh, why I wanted to go and do this was because it was so cool that we got a chance to do user experience and then have an opportunity to validate that it, in fact, truly was the right decision or not. And that's why I wanted to go and take the lens of crossing and intersecting user experience research, where you're thinking about what the problem is, how we might solve it and then validating whether or not that solution works. So your background is in, in human factors. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that connect to zero? How, how did you become working someone that, that works in zero? Because usually yeah. 
up until recently, zero was not something you could study at at any school or, <laughs> yeah. or college. Yeah. There's a lot of people here uh, in zero with different backgrounds. How, how did your journey look like? How, how did that uh, come to be? Yeah. So I studied economics in undergrad. And my last semester, I encountered Dan Ariely and got to interview him for this behavioral, about his behavioral economics book. So it was in, in this economics journalism class got a chance to spend an hour with him and really first got exposed to what behavioral economics was. So we had operated in the system of people being predictable and us being able to chart out how people would behave based on market forces. And it just planted the seed for me. And I wasn't really sure how that could be applied in the real world. And I went and worked in banking for a few years. Didn't really like that. So I decided to switch career paths and get a master's in, user, um, in human factors and information design. So I was applying the concepts of behavioral economics in the case of qualitative data. And then when I finally encountered A-B testing at Google, I had I felt like a ha moment, like everything came together. <laughs> it was like I went from being an analyst and really getting into the data, questioning if those assumptions were true, and then being able to take real world experimentation to understand what's really happening. So it all kind of came together in CRO. Yeah, it's basically a match made in heaven, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Combining those two uh, fields of work um, and, and use that to optimize well, whatever you want to optimize. As mm -hmm. long as there are a bunch of customers, you, mm -hmm. can, you can do that. Um, and today we wanted to talk about uh, bringing more creativity into into CRO. Um, instead of being overly analytical, uh, because I think a lot of people have that background, more analyst uh, background, or uh, I think also in, in a lot of people from uh, coming from SEO, uh, having a more analytical mindset, more data-driven uh, mindset. Um, so first off, how would we define creativity in this scene? How, how would you yeah. how would you look at that? I think what often I what I've often seen when I talk to other people who do testing is that we we're, we're really solution focused and we're trying to justify that solution using data. And I think if we all took a step back from that and said, let's use data to define where we're heading and what the problems we know about are, and then we can plug in creativity to explore different types of solutions. So solutions don't have to be constrained to I see this particular problem and there's only one solution but instead giving ourselves the possibility that there's one problem and there might be a hundred solutions. And so giving time and space to explore that so you can ultimately put the best thing out there for testing. And, and, and so, so how would we, how would one develop this? And, and, and how do, would you know if you already have some creativity? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm yeah. often surprised when people say, Hey, that's very creative because I don't, do not see me, see myself as, as a creative person at all. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I have a light bulb moment apparently that <laughs> sometimes others recognize. Uh, so how would you find out? I think it's giving permission to be, um, to not shoot down ideas right away. So what I often see is this sort of like, if you're in a conference room and you're kind of like you have to present your case for something and then you only you're presenting one case for one solution and there's not really this opportunity to say but i might be wrong or there might be better ways to do this and like let's open up that conversation so when i think about something like a sprint week you take a week and the first few days you're not saying no to anything yet you spend time literally saying write down every idea there's no bad idea get them all out there and then don't worry about judgment yet 
So I think it comes down to postponing judgment and separating the space between this is creativity and brainstorming. And then this is when we're evaluating which things we should move forward with. So it's postponing judgment mm-hmm. on yourself, but also that, that sounds like something that, that needs to be um, a, a cultural thing that you need to have in your team, right? That's not necessarily that's, that's for just one person. It needs to be mm-hmm. fostered and, and, and bred by the company itself. Absolutely. It has to be something where you can, if you can define the ground rules before the conversation and then keep reinforcing them, it will make a, uh, it will create a safe space or it'll create an environment where people can put those vulnerable ideas out there. They don't have to worry about whether that idea makes them seem smart or informed, but instead you, you explicitly state like there are no judgments. We will delay any conversation that negates these ideas. And instead take something um, I would borrow from improv, which I do a little bit of that on the side. Uh, And for improv, what we do is we say yes and. So there's this idea of somebody has an idea and you build on it as opposed to saying, no, that's not true. This world doesn't have that thing to be true. And so it's even just laying ground rules like yes anding in the conversation as opposed to let's shoot down every reason why this is a bad idea. And when you do that, it really just creates negativity and doesn't allow people to, to submit those more risky ideas. Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online Influence, the bestseller on managementbook.nl. Or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. How would you do that if you, if you uh, start working with a new client um, and you, you notice that they don't really have this culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, they just want, well, we just want solutions, basically. Yeah. We just want you to to find the improvements and implement them, maybe even. Um, how would you go about trying to get them convinced that, that adding that creativity is a good thing? Yeah, I think there's two tactics. I think one is you can start with it and say, this is how we're going to do it. And here's an activity and you can kind of come in and play fun police. You're like, we're going to come in and be the fun people. We're going to spend a half hour having fun, being creative and finding new solutions. And people actually really like that, right? It's a great way to get to know people. You can just like kind of open up and talk about your ideas. Um, Some cultures don't allow that. And they're going to say, get to work, give me those tests. (laughs) I don't want to have any workshops. I don't need, my team doesn't have time. And so if that's the case, then you you can delay that and build towards it. So in the cases where it's very um, transactional in the conversation, they're just wanting to improve conversion, improve conversion. They're not wanting to think about, are we doing the best approach to it? Um, in those cases, I like to interject as we're talking about research find- or as we're talking about A-B testing findings. So if we see a test that lost or it had an unexpected outcome, then we can talk about, are there other ways that we could have approached this? And so you can start inserting those, let's talk creatively about this. I often find that if you take the same problem and you tackle it twice and you don't find a solution, that's when people are open to starting to really have these brainstorming sessions or to take in some qualitative input as opposed to saying, like, you guys know it, you're, you've done this a thousand times, like, I just trust you to find a solution, because your their audience is different than every other audience. And so you do need that creativity and focused discussion around that particular audience. When, when I um, get to a new client, uh, I, I like to 
do a little exercise called the, the marshmallow spaghetti challenge. Um, maybe you're familiar with that one. Do you have any other specific exercises to, to, yeah, to get them in the mindset of, of, of being creative, being open, maybe before actually looking at the DUX problem that you're uh, looking at? Yeah, I, it, I have some just really basic exercises. I think it's a really important thing to do something like an icebreaker so that everyone in the room has made themselves vulnerable in a semi, semi-personal way. So it might be something like name your worst haircut you've ever had, or, you know, tell me about your, like the first concert you ever went to. And there's an angle of just like opening up a little bit personally and allowing everyone in the room to open up like that, that sets a standard of like, Hey, we're human and we're all trying to work together to do something as opposed to like, I'm coming in with my suitcase and my suit and I'm putting on a show for you. Um, so I think that is a really important aspect to just get started on the right foot and to present the ground rules like we talked about earlier. Um, I also just, I love giving introverts a space to be creative as well. A lot of the times there's just this culture of like sitting and throwing out ideas at each other. And so I think sticky note exercises are really great where you can sit and doodle or have sketch pads and like everyone can kind of sit quietly and then report back. And that's a nice opportunity to go, um, if you take the time for everyone to sit and reflect individually, and then you go around and everyone presents it before anything's any feedback's given, it avoids this like herd mentality that sometimes happens in creative discussions too, where people kind of jump on a bandwagon because the first person said it, and then those other ideas get left behind. So that's those are some of the principles that I like to operate with: is give everyone a chance to think and give everyone a chance to speak before even weighing in on any of the options. Yeah, it's actually the the. The default idea I would have from a brainstorm session uh, about UX is sticky notes. <laughs> yeah, it's always sticky notes. <laughs> bring, bring a lot of sticky notes. So um, when you go uh, and, and do these kind of exercises, uh, trying to be creative, is there a certain group composition that you would, would be looking for that's ideal? Maybe certain people you, you specifically don't want to have in mm. such a session or do want to have in such a session? Personally, I think having people who represent different um, points of view within the company can be really helpful. So coming from a product background, that would mean having someone from the engineering team, someone from marketing, somebody from sales, like having representation across the board because everyone has a different experience and lens into your customer experience. And so having those different inputs just lead to very different ideas and then you can feed off of each other. So what I wouldn't recommend is having a room just of analysts or a room full of just engineers. Like you wanna make sure that the group is diverse. Um, I think on the, the negative side of people you might wanna leave out, you may wanna leave out, especially in cultures where it's very top down, you may wanna leave out leaders. You might want people to be pretty much at the same level so that you have a chance to align as a group and then present the idea as opposed to feeling like people are trying to impress the boss. Yeah. I think that's the division. So a diverse room from different perspectives and then trying to keep people where they can all be equally on the same equal footing. Yeah. Would you also include actual uh, customers or actual users of the of the product or service into such a session or would it be a different session? I would personally do a group internally so people get on board with the creative process before bringing in customers. Um, I think often with customers, you want to have the customers talking to each other and so in an ideal, like there's no budget, time is open, like let's do the best possible thing. You would do an internal session, you would do a group with just customers, and then you would do a group where you're mixing customers with internal. So that way you get those different mixings of perspectives. There's a, there's a tendency when you bring customers in that they 
kind of become the centerfold of the conversation. And you, it's kind of like they're the boss, right? Like you're, there are people that you want to make sure feel like your team's smart. So you want to make sure that you, you can give people really comfortable situations to really open up and talk about different solutions. And usually uh, those sessions where um, I'm mixing clients and customers, it's usually, it's not about the session itself. It's more about the awareness of uh, getting those clients aware or, or the people working in, in, for example, digital marketing teams aware, hey, there's actual, there are customers and this, this is how they look. <laughs> there's real people <laughs> on the them. other side. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, the value of bringing customer voices in is just un, like unlimited. There's just so much power in bringing them in at the right time and for the right moments. So I think when we're thinking about brainstorming sessions about solutions, I tend not to think about bringing customers in, but you absolutely need them because if their voice isn't in the room, you're really missing out a huge opportunity to learn and to get inspired. So maybe in my ideal situation, instead of those three buckets, you would first start with the user research. So you have the data of what how users are responding to some of their challenges. And then the creative solution finding would be those three stages. And in the overall optimization process, um, how, how often would you do these kind of sessions? And, and when in the process of, of optimization would you do these? I think ideally you do them every quarter. So you're always thinking about what have we learned and then where do we go next? And I think quarterly feels like the right pace for a lot of businesses because you can get through several cycles of solving problems and then reflect on it. So for some businesses, it might realistically be once a year, and then uh, and then you're building out the roadmap for the rest of the year. But in an ideal scenario, if you're really moving fast, you want to make sure you take that time to reflect and be creative moving forward. Of course, a lot of people uh, that, that do user research, uh, a lot of people unfortunately don't do user research, or at least companies that don't include it yet uh, in their optimization programs, mainly focus on uh, analytics and um, basically the, the hard data um, that, that they do have from tools like Google Analytics or uh, whatever analytics tools they use and then um, do experiments based on that. Um, so what, what would you say is the value that, that user research brings to that in general? I think very simply, we get the what from the, quanti the quantitative data and the why from the qualitative data. So we can always see what customers are doing looking at Google Analytics, but we can only infer why they're doing it. And if we talk to customers and have them think aloud in user research, we can really get a chance to really understand what's happening and why they're doing it. So I love to bring research in when we just don't know why a test didn't turn out the way it did. Like I have a client who's been working at the same concept on their product page over and over for the last six months. And we're at a stage now where we have to do user research because otherwise we're going to have this endless cycle of trying to put something out there that isn't informed by why are customers not responding to this very thoughtful approach. So for businesses that aren't yet really thinking about user research in the process, I think that's the easiest and most natural place to first plug in user research is asking, why didn't this test perform we, the way we expected? And can we get inspired to do something better and improve on it? For over 10 years now, Online Dialogue advises about evidence-based conversion optimization with a focus on data and psychology. We see that analyzing data and recognizing customer behavior results in a better online dialogue with your clients and a higher ROI. The team of strategists, analysts, psychologists and UX specialists gathers valuable insights in the online behavior of your visitors and together with you, they optimize the different elements of your CRO program through redesign, expert reviews, A-B tests and behavioral analysis. For more information about their services, go to onlinedialogue.com. 
hour before the test that you just uh, see uh, like a weird drop-off point somewhere in your funnel. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be very eye-opening to do those. Uh, the, and it's, it's very fairly easy to start with, right? I mean, you can, you can of course, complicate user research as much as you want, but in, in like a basic user research and interview with uh, someone or just having someone perform uh, while buying something on the e-commerce site. Uh, it can be a very simple task that you can just observe people people doing, and um, yeah, you, like you said, you can you can brainstorm for hours uh, on why something <laughs> is the way it is. Yeah. But you can also just look at the, those users. Yeah. yeah. What, what are some examples that you, you that you find uh, that you found before uh, where something was unclear, looking at Google Analytics, but very obvious? Uh, when you did user research? I think navigation is often something that you can't get a really clear sense of why people are doing the things they do. And if you do a tree test or a card sort, you're suddenly having these aha moments like, oh, our our navigation is reflecting our business, not what our users need or expect. So I think navigation is a case where over and over every time people are really surprised by the kinds of things you see. So we did a test with a customer where we took some messaging from their homepage and moved it to their product page. And it was value proposition messaging. And it just like a very foundational marketing thing is you tell customers why they should buy from you. And the test didn't win. It didn't do anything. It was inconclusive when we moved that content over. So we were kind of trying to figure out why that would be the case because we saw in the heat maps that people were scrolling and seeing it and it wasn't impacting their decision. But when we did a user study on it, we got a chance to get qualitative feedback on how people were responding to it. And time and time again, across all 10 participants, people were like, so what? This is the same as every other company would say. And so we learned that the messaging itself that they had used elsewhere and were using it in their sales and their marketing and all over wasn't resonating. And so they didn't ever really took the time to reflect on the words itself. And we just thought that we, we all made some assumptions that that was effective. And by the time we got to the point of user research, like it kind of just created this tidal wave across their company of things they needed to go revisit. So user research can be really insightful and can really pull back some assumptions that the business has been making time and time again for a really long time. Yeah. I think the, the most obvious uh, one from my side, an example that I've, I've used before is that, that uh, we saw a big drop off in a certain step in, uh, in the checkout process. Uh, I, th- I don't think we had... Um, uh, field stack so we didn't necessarily see which field was the was the problem just the page uh, i was on and um yeah of course there's a lot of little things a lot of things happening on those pages so you can you can think of anything and and, and brainstorm uh for hours but we did a user uh, research it was very obvious there was a there was a gifting company and they there was this field uh that required you to enter the phone number of the person you were sending the gift to mm. and there was no explanation why why the company needed that mm-hmm. and it was and when we sat down with those customers like five out of six uh, of that day they they complained started complaining about it <laughs> oh, I, I don't have it uh, i don't want you to spam the person or it's it's a um, it's a surprise so why would you what are you gonna do <laughs> are with you that? gonna ruin the surprise yeah. or yeah so uh, and it's, it's, it stands out so clearly if you do user research sometimes, not always, of course, but sometimes it stands out so clearly what the problem is on such a, uh, such a page and yeah. how you can improve that. I find that every time I deliver a user research report, I'm like, this is going to feel obvious. And it's because it's now obvious. It wasn't obvious before. Yeah. And we got to this point and had yeah. to ask and learn. And it becomes obvious because you're hearing it over and over from customers. 
But it also makes sense, like in that example you just gave, that there's a lot of questions of like, why are you asking this? And whenever you introduce uncertainty, you almost inevitably hear that in user research, that they also are feeling uncertain. So set expectations, it's just a good principle. Set expectations for how yeah. stuff will be used, when it will show up, and then that will remove a lot of that friction. Another study that came to mind was actually a survey that we did on an exit where we were wondering why we were seeing such a big drop off in checkout. And overwhelmingly, we saw that people were leaving because of coupon codes. And it was something that we thought could be the case, but the customer wasn't really clear that that made sense because they said, oh, there's customer, there's coupon codes all over. But 80% of the people said, I'm leaving to find a coupon. And it really just changed our strategy about talking about coupons. How do we present it? Where do we present it? How do we make it easy if we want to be a discount focused brand? How do we make it easy to grab the code or apply the code? So just asking the questions when you're seeing that drop off in data, that took five minutes to set up. You know, these things are not complicated. The tools are out there now that can make it really low cost to get feedback from customers, whether it's usability study or a survey. So you just, you just spoke about, uh, you, you mentioned about uh, uh, delivering those reports to clients. Mm -hmm. what's, your, what's your favorite way of, of, well, basically telling them what's wrong? What, what, what the results were from those uh, those studies? Is it like, like video or presentation or how, how would you uh, go about doing that? It really depends on the scale. So for the, the example about the survey, it was just something we shared quotes and we did it in context in our weekly meeting and everyone was like, yep, makes sense. Let's move forward. So sometimes I like to present it really simply so it doesn't feel like an overthought out result. It's This is an insight, just like an analytics insight. We pulled it from GA. Here's the data. We pulled it from customers. Here's the data. But in cases like the one I mentioned where it really had a major cultural impact to the business, it was really important that we showed recordings. So I like to deliver it as a very simple executive summary. So it's easy to share. A lot of the time, like C-level folks don't have a lot of time and are used to kind of flipping through things in email. So we like to have quick reports, uh, quick insights pulled out in the email, a very short report with some, sim with some simple takeaways on the first slide. And then for people who want to really understand and hear the customer and have the time to do that, we'll build video clips where we'll weave together audio clips or video clips of customers. So it all depends on what you're trying to communicate. Yeah, exactly. And, and it might also depend a bit on the maturity of the client already, mm -hmm. how much extra context you need to give. And also how much they know you, right? So if you're very early in a relationship with a client, sometimes you need to present a little bit more information to build that credibility. And for customers we've been working with for several years, they don't really need us to spend that time to build a formal report because we got the insight we needed to be able to move forward. So what would be your favorite uh, methods of, of doing research? Or do you, do you have a favorite or mm. does, does it totally de depend on the, on the issue that you're facing? So from the lens of creativity and getting to the best test ideas, I think usability studies are the best. So the reason is it gives you a chance to really see somebody use your product from start to finish. And in e-commerce, it's a pretty standard flow for most sites. So it's easy to catch main things at every part of that website funnel. Um, so for me, that's my favorite because it lets me level up all my test ideas. On every part of the site, I'm inspired by some new insights that I didn't have before. And it's a great tool to get a baseline. So you can do a usability study every quarter, once a year, and you can keep rerunning that same study and understanding changes over time in what customers expect and how they're responding to the new elements on the site. So I think that's by far my favorite. With the usability study, you mean um, uh, inviting participants, giving them a case to work on, to do something, to work through the website, 
videotaping that. Yeah, I should explain what it is. That's a great call. (laughs) (laughs) So um, a usability study is, there's several different approaches to it. Where it started was often in a lab setting where people would physically come to your lab, be at a computer, you would sit next to them and you would give them a script and moderate as they're working through an application or a website. Um, Technology has enabled us to do a lot more remote research as well as remote unmoderated. So tools like usertesting.com, TryMyUI, userinterviews.com, all these tools can enable you to just quickly get feedback from customers that are a good representative sample of who your target customers would be. So for me, I like the unmoderated remote studies because you can get that feedback really fast and it's low cost. So the trade-off of, of time and cost to inspiration and insights is one of the best, I think, for CRO. And when it's online, uh, it's, it's relatively easy to well, to segment the, the type of users you get, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, m- m- most of those services allow you to pick people from a certain country or certain experience level. Or They also let you add screener questions. So you can ask, we've segmented our user usability studies based on, is this a current customer of this business? Is this somebody who's never purchased from them, but have purchased from their competitors? You can tier them based on their spending habits. There's all kinds of things you could introduce into the survey so that they get closer to your target market. And you can get insights that say, for new customers, these are things that we might need to do. For existing customers, these are some of the things I might expect. And so you can go really deep and start really segmenting down. But at a very basic level, just getting people who are um, reflect the country, the basic income characteristics, uh, maybe certain brands that they've shopped before is a great starting place to get a baseline. Marketing budgets have suffered, and the share for A-B testing has been impacted too. If you want to keep testing to enterprise standards, but save 80% on your annual contract, you can consider Convert.com. With their summer release, you can take advantage of full-stack and hybrid features, strong privacy compliance, no blink, and enterprise-grade security. Feel good about your smart business decision. Invest what you save back in your zero program. Check out www.convert.com slash 2020. Comment I got from a client a couple of months ago, they said, yeah, we, we can do a user study, but we don't want to use any of those those kind of services because those are people that are used to doing user studies. So they are, they are very... Uh, adapt at, at, at going through those uh, those websites and th- those are not our those are not normal users what would you re- your response be to that yeah I think there's two ways to to mitigate that risk because it's true there's going to be some bias introduced because of the way you're doing the recruitment but that would be true if you recruited people from Twitter right if you decided to post and say we need people for our study let's sign up on Twitter you suddenly are just looking at the Twitter segment of your customers. So from, for a tool that's unmoderated research, you, could, you can mitigate some of those things by saying, how many studies have you done in the last six months, or the last 12 months, and then screening out people that way. Um, some of those tools will have some transparency. And so that's another thing to look into when you're deciding which tools to use is how much are they enforcing that or providing that insight back to you. And then um, I think the other, the most robust thing you can do is to introduce opportunities for people to opt into your re- user research across any interaction with your business. So for very large companies, many of them have their own databases for people. Uh, when I was at Google, we had a mix. We had our own internal database and we worked with external recruiters and we worked with the unmoderated tools as well. 
So sometimes it's also just about diversifying where you're getting the insights from. Yeah, exactly. I think if, if I get the chance, I, I prefer doing a mix of different uh, types of research because then you can uh, mitigate those those biases that each method has and then see, okay, but if we still get a consistent picture over these different uh, methods, then probably we're fine. We can, we can move to the next step. It's the same thing as why we combine qualitative and quantitative. If you just look at the qualitative yeah. data, it's not going to give you as much information as putting the two together. So same same thing with recruitment, finding participants, talking to people. You can do usability studies plus interviews plus analytics, and you'll just be way better off than if you just did interviews. So what would be some things that you're changing or improving in the coming 12 months in, in regards of, of the way you work with clients? I think what one of the things we're really working towards is creating a product around this combination of user research and A-B testing. We've often just plugged in user research as the relationship develops because people have a better understanding of what it means to work with a company for CRO services and might be more hesitant to make that investment for research. Um, and we're we're looking to really formalize and productize that so that every company has a consistent, like let's start with user research and analytics exploration so that our roadmap is just automatically elevated versus waiting several months before we start doing some of that work. So for us, it's you know, getting the word out and talking about it, productizing it and having that be the, the way that we, we do our services. We had some discussion in our, or also in our Facebook group about how you uh, manage billing clients. So uh, how do you go about that? Is it, is it like a fixed fee for a certain period or do you have like a monthly retainer or what's your preferred method of doing that? Good question. Uh, we are doing time and materials at the moment. So we will set a six or 12 month engagement and then we'll uh, set, work towards that budget and track to it each month. So we we just we have a culture of transparency, and so we, we meet with our customers every week or every other week, and we'll report down on how we're doing against that overall budget. But the short answer is we do time and materials. So do you have some uh, goals that you set? Uh, as in, uh, we will improve your revenue by X percent. <laughs> Probably not, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, we tend to be talking about, and we tend to frame it in the in regards to how many different tests we would be doing at which level of complexity. So we'll, we might be doing five simple tests and two medium level tests and one user research study. So we'll we'll tend to yeah. estimate how much time all that stuff will take and talk about those deliverables. Um, when you get into the math of like calculating the specific revenue, we do estimates based on individual tests and we'll talk about that, but we generally don't make that as part of the commitment or requirement for the program itself. Yeah, I think um, yeah, a lot of people are struggling with that. I mean, ideally you would, uh, I think, uh, do it based maybe on on revenue, but that's, of course, if if you hit something like COVID-19 and a, a global pandemic, then, then you're screwed. Um, and uh, if you're doing a really good job, the, the client probably don't, doesn't want to pay you anyway <laughs> if, you, if you do it revenue-based. Yeah. That's, that's also an issue that a lot of uh, those uh, zeros uh, encounter. On the other hand, you also not, don't necessarily want to do it hourly-based. That's, that's also tricky. It is. Because uh, it's not scalable. I think the hardest thing about what we do is that if we're doing a really good job, we're creating so much more value than just what an individual test is saying. So we're in, we're creating insights that potentially your whole business can act on. And so to quantify that value and to calculate that is it is hard. And I think all the models have shortcomings for how we can uh, set up yeah. billing. Mm -hmm. All models are wrong. Some are useful. <laughs> So as, as a final uh, uh, question, uh, AJ, any, any books that you would like to tip to, uh, to our audience? We have some avid readers or uh, audiobook listeners uh, and obviously podcast listeners uh, uh, in our audience. 
So what, what would you like to uh, tip them? I'd actually like to challenge them to insert a little creativity and fun. So rather than a book recommendation, I'm going to recommend two book, uh, two games that are really fun, but still database. So uh, Dan Ariely, who I mentioned early on, has a game called The Irrational Game, mm-hmm. which is a great game for kind of guessing how people are going to behave and how irrational they are. And then there's a really fun game called Charty Party, which is very simple, very similar to Cards Against Humanity. And it's all about charts. So you're describing what you're seeing in the chart with different pairing of pairings of words. <laughs> you know, in the age of COVID, we can read lots of books, but it's good to create some interactions with people. So I would encourage them to check out those two games. So can we do those, these online? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you could do, you know, if you each had a version of Charity Party, you could probably play it like over Zoom. Okay. So we'll have a look at those. I'll, I'll, I'll include links to those, uh, those games in, uh, in the show notes of the podcast. So you can all uh, have a look at that. AJ, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for sharing uh, uh, your experience uh, with uh, with user testing and being uh, being a bit more creative and uh, bringing that to the zero game. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. And this concludes Season 2, Episode 33 of the Zero Cafe Podcast with AJ Davis. Next week's episode is in Dutch where we'll talk about soft persuasion with Misha Koster. And the week after that is again in English, together with Joel Kletke, and we'll be talking about zero copywriting. Talk to you then, and always be optimizing.